Amen. All right, go ahead and uh, take out your Bible and turn to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. John 16, we're going to look at verses 25 through 33 this morning. John 16, 25 through 33. You'll notice I'm a little under the weather this morning, so I know that's a shock. I'm never under the weather. I know that. I know I'm always under the weather, it seems like, but just bear with me this morning, okay? Um, John 16, 25 through 33. When I was uh, a younger person, I was about 16, my parents, for my birthday one year, they, they gave me a vehicle, a car. Uh, it was a 1996 Honda Civic. I was uh, getting my license about 2004, and so that was by no means a new vehicle, but it was wonderful to me. It was the first car that I ever really wanted, and there were several that I wanted at that time, but that was the first one that I'd really kind of set my eyes and, and wanted, and so my parents blessed me. They gave me a 1996 uh, black Honda Civic, and I loved that car. Now, I knew nothing about cars. I knew nothing about upkeep other than that you drive it and you put gas in it to make sure that it keeps moving forward. That's what I, that's what I knew about cars, about vehicles. A little over a year later, I was uh, having a conversation with a friend of mine's father. Uh, we were driving to, to go like swimming or something like that. This is a little over a year after I'd gotten the vehicle. And uh, this guy knew a few things about cars, and so he started talking to me about my car. He asked me uh, what kind of oil I put in my car, and it never really struck me in the 15 or so months of driving my car that my car needed an oil change from time to time okay it's like a year and a half I've been driving this thing and suddenly it was like oh yeah I should put oil in my car that's something that I should probably do and so um, (laughs) we went to do that and he he looked at me you know like somebody that knows things about cars when someone says they haven't put oil in their car in like a year and a half you make the face that you probably would think that you'd make he looked at me like I was an absolute buffoon Um, and so we went and got some oil and put oil in my car and took the dipstick, measured it, and it wasn't even registering. I mean, this thing was bone dry, all right? It was really, you know, on its last wheel, probably. Uh, Now, thankfully, I never had any issues with it. Now, I say that, but that doesn't change the fact that I was a real dummy. Cars need to be maintained. They need to be cared for. Otherwise, they will be vulnerable to failure. Now, mine wasn't in that instance, and I'm thankful for that, but that doesn't change the facts, right? Cars need to be tended. They need to be cared for. My parents had gifted me a very precious gift, which I was entrusted to nurture, to experience the gift to the fullest extent, and yet I was squandering that precious gift. I say all that to say this, that if you're in Christ, God has given you a precious gift. He's given you salvation. He's given you saving faith. But this gift must be nurtured. It must be cared for in order to, just like my car, experience faith to the fullest of God's intention for you, lest, like that car, you be vulnerable to failure. Your faith has to be tended. It must be nurtured. It must be cared for. And so this is what we see in chapter 16 of John as we're closing this farewell discourse that what Jesus is saying to his disciples is, folks, listen, you have to tend to your faith. Maintain it. Keep it. Guard it. Care for it. So I want you guys to see this in John 16, verses 25 through 33. It should be on the screen behind me, all right, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, but I hope that you do. There should be one in the pew in front of you, because we're going to walk through the text this morning as we've done all the way through John at this point, all right? John 16, 25 through 33. This is what John writes for us. Jesus is talking. He says this, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. 
And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. And now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and leave me alone. Yet, I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. As I said a moment ago, we're finishing uh, the farewell discourse. This is something that's been going on from the beginning-ish chapter of chapter 13 all the way to the end of chapter 16. For scale, that's like several months that we've been in John. This is one conversation, the longest record of Jesus' continuous consecutive teaching in the whole Bible. You may think, well, it's probably the uh, the Sermon on the Mount or something like that. No, this passage in John from chapter 13 to 16 is the largest single setting teaching of Jesus. So it's very significant what's going on here. What's happening is what I just said. It's a farewell discourse. It's a farewell conversation. Jesus is going somewhere and he's giving them these words. He's going to be arrested this very night. And so let's look back just for a second for the past uh you know for the past several weeks of what we've already talked about that in the last couple of hours real time jesus has been talking with these guys some of the things that have already happened in chapters 13 through chapter 16 that he has washed the disciples feet to teach them what it means to have servant-hearted love also to teach them that they must be washed of their sin he has predicted his own betrayal at the hands of judas iscariot he has said that he is leaving that he's going to prepare a place for them he wasn't going to build a house for them or a mansion for them he was going to to prepare a place for them not built by brick and mortar but built by a bloody cross that's the place that he was going to prepare for them he has told them if you love me you will keep my commandments you will obey me he told them hey my helper don't worry i'm not going to leave you as orphans my helper is going to come and help you accomplish that mission i'm not going to leave you i'm going to give you a helper and he's going to say as the helper makes his abode with you i want you to abide in me and so i want you to love one another he says the world will hate you as it hated me which affirms not denies but affirms that we are set apart And then he says the reason that all that's going to take place is for stating in chapter 16 verses 1 and 2 that you're going to be tempted to flee. You're going to be tempted to wander off, to forsake the faith. But he instructs them, do not fall away, though the world may hate you. It hated me first, and that only serves to affirm and confirm that you are in Christ. And so they have a season of grief that's approaching, the cross, but that season of grief will give way to an eternal season of joy and the resurrection and the life. I want you guys to look at something before we dive into the outline and kind of look at our notes that I'm going to have on the screen. There's one thing I want you to see, verse 25 and verse 33, the beginning and end. You'll see uh, two words, uh, probably in my translation, uh, it is in my translation, probably in yours. It says, I have said these things. Do you guys see that? Some nods, 
Do you see that? I've said these things in verse 25. Look at verse 33. He says again, I've said these things. Okay, so what we have here is, it's a literary technique. It's just a sandwich. That's the reason I've broken this passage apart the way that I have. Is that it's a sandwich. What he's saying is, in conclusion, I've said these things, all these things we just talked about, this whole farewell discourse, all of that exists for this purpose. And then he closes it by saying, I said all those things, once again, for this purpose. Jesus is going to cap this thing off, this farewell discourse, by leaving them with a hopeful word of encouragement. Though he leaves to finish the Father's assigned work, he and the Father are far from finished with them. They're far from finished. Although he leaves, a work is going to continue. And so his instruction for them is to be encouraged, to respond. And so as they respond, we respond. So let's look at the passage this morning. If you're taking outline uh, notes today, this is going to be our structure. Three ways to tend to my faith. Three ways to tend to my faith. The first is to be amazed that I am reconciled with God. To be amazed that I am reconciled, reconciled with God. <clears throat> reconciled is, is a fancy word. Uh, it shouldn't be too fancy though because it really should be one that we add to our uh, dictionary in our minds. Reconciled is an important word. It means that things were once good and then things were suddenly damaged and now they're mended or restored again. Okay, Things were good. Then they were broken, and now they are mended again. Now the reason I use this word is because Jesus wanted them to feel the weight of the meaning of this word as it pertained to their relationship with the Father. Look at verse 25. He says again, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Before Jesus was resurrected and certainly before he was crucified, he had a way of teaching and speaking to people in sort of a cryptic way. He wasn't trying to confuse them, but he wasn't trying to totally reveal everything that was going on in his mind. And so cryptic, I don't mean that in a bad way. He just had a mysterious way about him. Now, we maybe don't necessarily read it that way, but you got to remember that zero of the gospel authors give any indication that the disciples made much sense of the cross until after Jesus was resurrected. There's a confusing nature to Jesus' teachings, at least until the cross and, and the resurrection occurred. In this discourse, he had spoken in figures of speech already. Now, not literally in, in you know, the things that he's saying, but some of his things were just a little bit confusing. I'm going to give you a few examples. We read John as, as 21st century Christians with sort of a, an informed gospel palette. Okay, what I mean by that is that you have heard the teachings of Jesus, probably if you were raised in the church or maybe not and you've just been at Spring Hill a while, you've heard all of John or maybe you've just heard the teachings of Jesus several times to where you pretty much have a gospel informed palate. What I mean is this, think of hearing these things for the first time, that Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Well, if, if my wife told me that she was going to go and prepare a place for me, I would assume that she would mean some physical location, somewhere where we're going to go and have dinner together. So maybe she made a reservation, I don't know, a physical place that's being prepared, but that's not what Jesus is saying, right? Well, we know that because we have a gospel-informed palate, but they didn't know that. So it's kind of a cryptic way of speaking. Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. We have a gospel-informed palate, so that kind of makes sense to us. But those guys, being the first hearers of that phrase, they're thinking, Jesus, you're a person. <laughs> you're not a, not, a, not a garden, right? And so these things are weird, the things that Jesus is saying. They're, they're sort of cryptic in a way. He tells them, I'm leaving, but I'm also not going to leave you. What? 
That doesn't make any sense. If you're going to leave, you're going to leave. You can't also be here and gone. But what he's talking about is that the Holy Spirit will be God with them. And so what I'm saying is, we read these things with a gospel-informed palate. Whereas the disciples did not understand it that way. And so they certainly thought, Jesus can be a confusing teacher from time to time, speaking in, in figures of speech in a cryptic way. Now among other things, many other things that he'd said that were a little bit cryptic, we could go into all those, but we're going to skip forward, okay? What Jesus said is that the hour is coming. The hour that he's talking about is the resurrection. That when he meets up with the disciples after the resurrection, he will spend 40 days before leaving earth, not teaching cryptically, but teaching very, very clearly because the hour had come. We know some examples of this. We won't go there. It won't make you flip there. But in Luke chapter 24, after Jesus is resurrected, listen to how clearly he teaches. He taught them himself from Moses and the prophets. If you were to turn there, you'd see it. That What he says is that he takes the law, the Old Testament, or the law and the prophets, and he says that he pointed every single bit of it to himself. It's very clear. He taught very clearly. Luke 24 also says that Jesus opened the disciples' minds to understand the scriptures. And I'll read this part, Luke 24, verses 46 through 49. It says that Jesus said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed uh, in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Do you see how clear those instructions are? This is exactly what I've done. This is exactly what I'm doing. And this is exactly what's going to happen next. This is very weird from someone that used to teach in a very cryptic way. And that's Jesus' point. Right? That up to this point, he has taught in figures of speech. But at, when the hour comes, when he's resurrected, he will teach clearly. But there's something else about that day. Because Jesus would die, because he would be raised, the main point of this passage is not that Jesus' teachings would become clear, but it's something else about the relationship with the Father. Look at verses 26 and 27. He says, in that day, again, that's resurrection day, in that day, You will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Now, I'm just going to make this very simple. What Jesus is saying is, when I'm resurrected, you're not going to have to pray in my name and that I will go and be an errand boy for you. That God, Father is over here, you're over here, you can't be together. And so I take your prayers and then I just run over to him. That's the first time I've done that behind the pulpit, right? And I'll just run over to him and I'll take it to the Father and say, hey, they want, they want this or they want to talk to you about this. Now run over back over. He's saying, I'm not going to be the middleman that way. What I'm going to accomplish is that I don't have to run back and forth. Instead, what it means to pray in Jesus' name is that I will have brought together two parties that were far off. He's not saying, I'm going to be an errand boy running back and forth. He's saying, I'm going to bring two parties that are alienated from one another together in fellowship. Reconciliation is the word for that. Two things that are far apart. In Jesus' name, he says, in that day, I will bring those two parties together. I want you to turn in your Bibles. Hold your finger here, okay? But turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. This right here is what Jesus is talking about, okay? Colossians 1, I'm going to read verses 21 and 22. 
Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians. Okay? Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. Now remember what I just said, okay? That Jesus is, is talking about, not that he's an errand boy running back and forth, but that he's bringing together two people that are far apart. All right? This is what it says. Colossians 1, 21 and 22. And you, listen to these words, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Listen, he, it's Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Listen, this is what that means. God is holy. It means he's sinless. Holy literally means set apart. It means different from everything else around it. God is holy. He is sinless. And he's the only creature in all of creation. He's not in creation, but he's the only being, deity ever, that is absolutely holy, absolutely perfect. And the thing is, there was a time in the Garden of Eden when man was at peace with God. Relationship was good. So God used to walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the night. They were together in fellowship. But then the fall happened. Sin happened. And you know what that did? It damaged the relationship. That the holy God could not be with the unholy man. And so the reason that I say all that is, listen, that passage in Colossians, it uses a great word for that. You were alienated and hostile. Alienated and hostile. Do you know what an alien is? It's not some, some green, you know, big-headed creature that lives in outer space. An alien is a foreigner. It's someone that doesn't belong in a certain place because you're a foreigner. That's what an alien is. You know how you were alienated from God? is because you don't belong with Him. You don't belong with Him. Because you're not holy. And neither am I. But God said, you belong with me. How can He say that? When He's holy and you're not. Insert Jesus. Insert the Christ. You're alien to Him. Colossians 1 tells us that you are hostile in your behavior. You know what that means? It means you're an enemy of God. It means you mean harm to him by your actions. But through Christ, just as that passage in Colossians said, you are reconciled. You're presented holy and blameless, as he said. Guys, that's the gospel, isn't it? That you who were once far off has been brought near by the blood of Christ. And Jesus needed them to understand the magnitude of this reality. Going back to John. This is what's happening here. Is that Jesus is saying, you and God are separated. You're a sinner. He is holy. You're separated. But because of what I'm about to do in that day, on that hour, when I'm crucified and when I'm resurrected, I won't be running between two parties that are far off. I'm bringing those two parties together in the name of Jesus. It's beautiful. That's the gospel. And Jesus is needing them to understand the magnitude of what it meant that Jesus brought them God in love, not in hostility. And I need you to understand Exactly what Jesus is saying. Church, this is an amazing privilege. An amazing privilege that you have. That I have. Think about it this way. I think I may have used an illustration like this before. But think of your, your favorite uh, musician or perhaps your, your favorite actor or your favorite professional athlete. Or maybe there was a, a historian or someone in church history or a president or a big uh, leader or a CEO and you really look up to them. Role model type thing. Okay, And you just admire their work. Maybe a, a novelist or an author. And someone in your life you're just thinking it would be really cool to get to meet that person. Like 
you know, just get to hang out, ask them some questions, be able to just visit. It'd be really interesting to be able to sit down with that person. It'd be a great honor to be able to talk with them. Now imagine that that person suddenly comes to your doorstep and says, you know what? I want to take you out for the day. I want to treat you. I want you to come hang out with me for the day. Let's go have lunch. Let's go hit the town. Let's go have some fun. Play laser tag or something. <laughs> Let's just go visit and have some fun. I'm going to take you to a, to a baseball game. We're just going to visit. We're just going to have a good time together today. If that person, that hero to you or whatever, role model, that actor, the musician, the person, the best concert you've ever been to, they come to your doorstep. Maybe a musician gives you backdoor, backdoor passes to get to hang out with the band. Think about it, something like that. Something so amazing. You wouldn't be able to shut up about it right? You'd want to tell all your friends that this has happened. You'd take all these pictures. You would celebrate it. And you should, because that would be a really neat privilege. But listen, guys, that privilege, it would absolutely pale in comparison with the joy and honor of being loved by God. Do you know how ridiculous it is that you would be so overjoyed with something so dumb in, in comparison to the fact that you have been reconciled to the God that created all things and we can sit in these pews Sunday by Sunday by Sunday and look so bored and so apathetic? How can we in good conscience be more excited for a football game, a sporting event or a concert than we're excited by the fact that unholy man, Caleb, has been reunited with the God of all things? There's, that doesn't make any sense, does it? Am I crazy here? That doesn't make any sense. Because that's our reality, isn't it? I don't think that we understand, if we're honest with ourselves, I don't think that you understand how amazing, how wonderful, how marvelous, as we sing, it is that Jesus Savior died for you. I, actually, I know that we're desensitized to that reality. Because we wouldn't be able to be still about it. And that's what Jesus' point is. Is that he wants you to understand, church, that you have such a joy and an honor of being loved by God. He's not some distant deity. He is near a loving relationship. Guys, you have access and intimacy with God. And here's the application. Why don't you cherish that? Why don't you celebrate that? Why aren't you amazed by that? How can you sing songs like the ones that we sang just a moment ago and not be amazed by those things? This is what Jesus is trying to explain to the disciples. Be excited, be amazed that you're reconciled to the Holy God. Secondly, three ways to tend to my faith. Is to make my faith tangible. To make my faith tangible. <clears throat> this comparison or contrast between real faith and fake faith is a constant theme in John. Now notice, by the way, when I read that, that Jesus is, is assuring them. Right? He's, he is giving them encouragement. They, they have been forgiven. They have peace. Okay, They have peace. And yet, they're going to be scattered. They're going to fall away. And so, it's not that these guys aren't believers. They're believers. But they struggle to have authentic, uh, real faith. You know, faith is more than just a mental thing that happens. It's more than just a mindset. More than just an emotion. Faith is an outward expression of an inward reality. All right? And so, let's see this. In verses 28 through 30, Jesus is going to explain this. 
He said, I came from the Father and I've come into the world. And now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. It's a very clear statement, okay? I came from the Father, came into the world. Now I'm leaving the world and I'm going to the Father. His disciples respond, obviously they say this. They say, ah, okay, so now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. They're right. It was a very straightforward sentence in verse 28, verse 30. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus had spoken to them generally and vaguely about leaving them already. We've looked at that. But in verse 28, he gets very specific. He says, I came from the Father into the world, and now I'm going back to him. There's no confusion about that. Very straightforward and very clear. And so the disciples' response is, you know, understandable. They say that now they get it. Okay, Jesus, finally. You've been clear with us. Okay, now we get it. That's kind of what their reaction is. The implication is that Jesus has told them that they don't really understand and won't understand until the resurrection when he makes it clear to them. But their response is that they get it now. The resurrection hasn't happened yet. They're saying, oh, we get it now. Jesus has just told them they're not going to get it until after the resurrection. And so something's got to give here. In verse 30, we kind of see that. They say, now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. It's a statement of faith that they're making. But here's the thing. Their statement of faith would be refuted in just a couple of hours when they are scattered from him. Do you see what I'm trying to get at here? A statement of faith is not faith. Faith is more than just words. It's more than just lip service. Which is why Jesus responds the way that he does in verse, uh, verse 31 and 32. He says, Jesus answered them, do you now? Essentially, do you now believe? Verse 32, behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. Jesus' response is, do you now? The disciples had stated their faith, but in moments their faith would be proven weak by their action, or lack thereof, as they will abandon Christ and be scattered out of fear of the Jews. Which, by the way, was the exact thing that Jesus warned them against at the beginning of chapter 16. Look at chapter 16, verse 1 and 2. He just warned them about that, right? He said, he's already, just now he just said, you're going to be scattered. Chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. He said, I've said these things, there's that word, these things again, to you to keep you from falling away. Here's what he says. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. He is warning them. He's warning them. He says, anchor yourself in me because you're going to scatter when things get difficult. And now he's telling them that it's going to happen again. Mark 14 verse 50 tells us that that's exactly what happens. It says they fled and scattered when Jesus was arrested. Now just for sake of chronology, you understand that where they're walking right now while they're having this conversation, they're about to walk through the Kidron Valley. Uh, We see that in uh, chapter 17, I believe. They're about to walk through the Kidron Valley and they're about to approach the Garden of Gethsemane. So just to put it in some sort of a framework here, in just a couple of hours, Jesus is going to be arrested. Okay, we're a couple hours away from ground zero. And he's telling them now, hey guys, anchor deep. Because you're about to be scattered deep. This is what he's saying. You see, true belief is not merely a statement of faith, but it's a life of devotion in action. True belief is not merely a statement of faith, but it's a life of devotion 
in action. Jesus was surrounded by men who, alongside Peter, who he just told in chapter 13, by the way, would, they would swear that they would lay down their lives for him. Yet when it came time to choose between comfort, protection, and self, or choose Christ, they chose the former. Just like Peter. Peter's not the only one here. They all fled. They all forsook. This is a room full of people who said that they would die for Christ. I guess they're outside, but then the upper room. A room full of people who said they would die for Christ, and yet they struggle to follow him when it gets serious. Guys, we're in a room full of people right now. Statements of faith abroad, right? Many people have stated their faith in Christ But this is a room full of people who say that they would die for Christ and yet struggle to prioritize even 10 minutes of each day for time in his word. What gives? That's what I'm talking about. The difference between a statement of faith and true genuine faith is that faith is more than just words. How can we say that we would die for Christ and we struggle to spend just a few minutes with him each day? while establishing hours in front of a screen. There's many people in this place that will speak to other people, words of devotion to Jesus, but rarely actually speak to him in intimate prayer. Do you think that Jesus is pleased by a faith that is just lip service? No. It's weak. It's weak faith. And that's Jesus' point, is that when the rubber hits the road, Faith is active. True faith is expressed in action. And maybe a good question to ask yourself this morning is, sure, my faith is verbal, but in what ways is my faith tangible? In what ways is my faith tangible? What a good time to you know, ask ourselves and examine ourselves. Lord, show me ways that I can make my faith tangible, more than just lip service. Now, don't don't get me wrong. It's important to state before the throne of God that you love him, that you admire him. Faith is absolutely verbal, but it's more than just words. Ask him, how can I make my faith tangible? Like the disciples, we fail in this way often, but we're not alone, right? Again, the disciples just did this. The 11 just did this, or they're about to. But they would scatter. Though they would scatter, one of them, or all but one of them, would eventually die for Christ. We see here, that they were devoted to Jesus. They would all scatter, and yet all but one of them would be martyrs for their faith. And so I want to apply that too as we go to this next point, that though we fail, there is good news, folks. Though we fail, though we will be like the scatterers, there is good news to be possessed. For uh, Number three, three ways to tend to my faith. Number three is to rest in irreversible peace. I say grace, I mean peace. Rest in irreversible peace. Ignore that. Although irreversible grace too. That's great. But rest in irreversible grace or peace. This next section of the passage is not about Jesus harping on their disloyalty. It's the opposite of that. However disheartening the scattering of the eleven may be, Jesus looks beyond their collapse into their restoration. Look at verse 33. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. 
There's that phrase again that I've said these things. What he's saying is that this entire discourse, this entire conversation, there's the summary statement. This is the point that Jesus is making. Because of what I'm about to do, though you will be hated and though trials will come, you will have peace. I have overcome the world. I want you to understand. Remember that gospel instructed palette, all right? You're already informed in some ways, but think about being the first hearer of this statement. Jesus is just not going to say, you're going to be hated. You're going to be despised. People are going to dislike you. They're going to threaten you. They're going to jeer at you. But here's the thing. Although you have difficult trials and difficult circumstances, peace I give to you because I've overcome the world. Those are two contradicting statements, it seems like. Okay, Jesus, you're going to tell us that our lives are going to be a real bummer sometimes. And yet, in those times, we can be reminded of our peace. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to them, but I want to make it make sense. Jesus' point is that what he's about to do by his death, he has made the world's opposition and efforts pointless and bleak. Jesus would go to Calvary and vacate the tomb. Why? To deal the death blow to death. The threat of life is done for. Death is done for. Because he would die, because he would be raised. Though the disciples would have their collapses, they have been given peace, just like you and I. That word peace is more than what our English dictionary says that it is. Peace is not just the absence of conflict. It's the Hebrew word. They would understand it as shalom. You ever heard that word shalom? The word shalom is not just the absence of conflict and turmoil, but it is also the notion of positive blessing, especially in terms of a right relationship with God. What's happening here is that the disciples' lives would be anything but peaceful. They would be anything but peaceful by human standards. Yet Jesus says they have peace. Why? Because there is nothing that Satan or man can do to reverse the peace you have in Jesus. Because there is no undoing what the cross of Christ accomplished. If the cross gave you peace, then there's no undoing the cross. And so they can have peace and peace indeed. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, Christian, you're going to have difficult circumstances in this life, and some of you are in those circumstances right now. That life can be a real bummer. And maybe you're in one of those seasons right now where you're just having a lot of trials and it seems like Satan is winning. Please hear me say that that's impossible. That he can't win. Because this peace is irreversible. Those circumstances may be far from peaceful for you right now. Christian, you may have peace. The reason why is because the greatest war has already been won. That's why Jesus proclaimed the words, it is finished. The enemy, death, sin, it's finished. Jesus doesn't promise that your life will be free from conflict. The opposite is true. He told them they would have conflict. He does promise, though, that you will have peace. These are the words that he says in Matthew eleven twenty eight. I love these words so much. I think they typify the gospel. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened or heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest is a very peaceful word, isn't it? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Christian, your daily battle, your greatest daily battle, 
It's not against the world. It's not against your difficult circumstances. Your greatest daily battle is against sin. But that enemy has already been defeated. So I think a good instruction from this passage is this. In this world, you will have trouble. Christ has overcome the world. So don't focus on your problems. Focus on your peace. Problems are real. I'm not ignorant to that. I understand. But don't focus on your problems. Focus on the fact that your greatest problem has been crushed by the cross of Christ. You are loved by the God that has accomplished that and the God who is in ultimate control. You know what Jesus' encouragement is to these guys as he's telling them so long? His encouragement to them is, I'm not your errand boy anymore. I don't run back and forth between two parties that are far off. The greatest encouragement that he gives his disciples is that though your life is going to be difficult, I have brought you near to the Father, and he loves you. I'm going to close with this. 1 Peter 5, 7 says this. And someone in this room needs to hear this today. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Let's pray. Father, are there many things in this life that so often we feel overcome by? We frequently feel overcome by sin. We frequently feel overcome by finances. We frequently feel overcome by doubt, overcome by family, overcome by gossip, overcome by laziness overcome by selfishness, by envy. Lord, but these are all symptomatic of something that could never, ever again overcome us, and that's sin. You have overcome the world. You have overcome sin. And so, Lord, help us not to dwell on our problems, but to dwell on our peace. Help us to live and pray daily those words, to cast all of our anxieties on Him, because He cares for us. Lord, today I pray that you would break the hearts of your people. That you would convict us. And the Lord, that you would help us understand that if there's anyone in this room this morning that has never come before the throne of grace and cast their greatest anxiety called sin on you, that today would be that day. You have done the greatest work. But the only way that that becomes ours is that we submit to you in saving faith and plead that you would forgive us of our sin. Lord, if that's someone today, let let today be the day of salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.